Who's excited about starting Matthew today? Woo-hoo! If you've got something to write with, I would encourage you to get out uh, something to take notes on. If you've got a guide, uh, you know, we work through, um, we produce these guides for you as a resource, and not everybody likes taking notes in the guide, and that's fine, but one of our aims as a church is to make sure that you understand God's Word and that you have a way to study it to remember it, to live in it, and then to turn around and to pass it on to someone else. So no matter how you take notes this morning, uh, I would encourage you to get a way to do that. Uh, We are beginning our study of the gospel of Matthew today, ladies and gentlemen. I could not be more excited. Um, Jesus Messiah is the name of our series. And if you've got your Bible, I would encourage you to get it open to the book of Matthew. And we are going to be starting today in chapter one, chapter one, in case you were wondering where we would start, it was a joke, Um, but yeah, we're going to be starting in chapter one. We love going through books of the Bible here at ICC. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be in Matthew from now until Christmas. We'll take a brief interlude around Christmas and the start of the year, and then we'll be jumping back into Matthew and staying in Matthew all the way until Easter Sunday, and I am thrilled about it. Um, Matthew, I'm going to put up a little screen here just as a bit of a background, because as we start books, I always want you to understand that these are historical books, and they're books that can be trusted, and you need to understand that they're set in a particular context. And so some of this information is in the guides. If you have the guide, you don't maybe need to write this down, but if you don't, you may find it helpful. Uh, But Matthew is... Uh, a former tax collector. He is the author of this gospel. There are four gospels. Each of them speak to the life and the ministry of Jesus. And Matthew's gospel is written by Matthew, um, hence its title. Matthew is a former tax collector who became uh, one of the 12 disciples of, of Jesus. And in some of the other gospels, just so you know, he's referred to as Levi, but he is one of the core disciples of Jesus. And he writes the book around probably 50 or 60 AD, around 20 or 30 years after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. And um, Peter and Paul, most believe, were still alive as the book was written. And really, Matthew doesn't talk about himself at all in the book. There's one you know, he, he talks about some accounts of, of his interactions with Jesus, but it's really not about Matthew at all. Matthew writes all about Jesus. That's the why here. This book is all about Jesus. He wants us to know the story of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. And really, the book is an evangelistic tool, both for Gentiles and for, for Jewish people. And he really wants them to know um, that Jesus is the Christ, which we'll talk more about that today. Most likely, the book was written to the church of Antioch in Syria. Most of you remember when we studied Acts this past summer and we got to chapter 13, and we talked about the formation of that church as the Jewish people were scattered and Gentile people uh, were coming to know Christ. Um, and most likely, this book was written to that church originally, but then was so widely distributed among all of the churches of Jesus Christ uh, in the region and now around the world. So that's a little bit of the background. I would like for you to think about Matthew as this. 
I'm going to put up a graphic, like a bridge builder, okay? So if you think about Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, really the Gospel of Matthew serves remarkably, beautifully, God's purpose for the book. One of the big purposes is for Matthew to be like a bridge. Bridge between what? A bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So for instance, if you were to jump from the book of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, straight into the book of Mark, or straight into the book of Acts, or straight into the book of Romans, you would be left bewildered. You'd be left entirely confused. And one of the beautiful things about Matthew is that really he serves as a bridge to help us understand out of the Old Testament promises and prophecies and history comes the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, and he helps us really understand Jesus in his place. And um, it really truly is a book about the generation of Jesus Christ. Matthew organizes his book topically, and this is important. Again, if you have the guide, and I highly encourage you to get the guide, uh, we are selling them still for less than cost. And so I would highly encourage you to get it um, just because it is a credible resource for you. But in the guide, there is a diagram that is actually, uh, is, we took this handwritten thing, and Robbie and the team, Tiffany, they are incredible, and they made it beautiful for you in the guide, because you can't read this chicken scratch, okay? But what I had them do was show, show us graphically how the book is organized, because it is important that you understand that Matthew approaches his book topically. He does not approach it straight chronologically. And a lot of people, as they go to the Gospels, they, they wonder why are there some differences in the order or some of the stories and things like that. But each of them has a unique purpose in how they are writing the historical facts about the life, the ministry, the message of Jesus. And Matthew definitely has purpose in how he's writing. He's got prologue here on the left, and then he brings it to a climax there on the right. But in the middle, he organizes his book around these five essential, what I would call discipleship discourses. And each of the discourses um, are, are presented there in, 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 for us to, to study and to understand what Jesus is teaching to his disciples and to us who trust and follow him. And before each of the discourses, he presents historical narratives, stories, that really are organized topically to help us understand and to move through these core discipleship teachings of Jesus. And so I just wanted y'all to understand as we move through the book, this is how Matthew is essentially organizing it. So today, y'all ready? Chapter one. The topic of today is this message title, Promised One, Background of the Messiah, promised one, background of the Messiah. And today we're going to move through the first 17 verses of, of the book. I want to go and give you the core truth. It's a long one, but it's an essential one. What I try to do as I teach through books is to give you core truths. In other words, if there's anything that you need to understand and to walk away with and to seek to live in light of from the passage that we're studying, here it is. And also, I found it helpful. I've traveled the world with many of you as we go and we work to plant churches and to disciple pastors and leaders across the world. What we do typically is we take these guides and we reteach books of the Bible. So if you were teaching a lesson on Matthew 1, 1 to 17, the core truth could help you 
really understand the purpose of which you're discipling another, whether it's one-on-one or if it's in a, another teaching setting in the future. So here's today's core truth. It is this. Jesus is the Messiah. Y'all probably aren't surprised that that's going to be a truth because of the title of the series, right? Jesus is the Messiah who came in fulfillment of the kingdom promises to David and the Gentile blessings promises to Abraham to provide the way for us all to receive the grace of God. I know it's a doozy. Let me repeat it. Jesus is the Messiah who came in fulfillment of the kingdom promises to David and the Gentile blessings promises to Abraham to provide the way for us all to receive the grace of God. We're going to walk through this more um, as we study the text this morning, but let's go ahead and read the text because this comes straight from the text for today. And I would like to read it. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, and we'll start in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Minadad. And Aminadab, the father of Ashlan. And Nashan, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerome. Jerome, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Joseph, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheathel, and Sheathel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elud, and Elud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 
generations. In hindsight, I wish I had selected a, someone else to read today's text. Um, this is God's word. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Promised one. Background of the Messiah. Some of you guys are going, this is going to be an interesting message. <laughs> what, are, why did, what are we doing in the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1? And the reality is, you know, if somebody comes into the scene and claims what Jesus claimed, don't you think that immediately one of the first things you're going to do is say, prove it, right? You're going to ask for proof. And that is exactly why Matthew chooses to open his book the way that he opens it. What is, who is this guy? What is his background? What credentials does he have? And he literally devotes the first uh, three um, in, in part of four, really from chapter one through chapter four around verse 11, to really introducing the Messiah, laying out his background and his credentials so that as we meet him in the gospel, that we can understand him and that we could see where he has come from, why he claims to be who he is, how he truly can be the fulfillment of all of the promises. And so Matthew lays it all out. Now, if you were reading this book, um, how many of you, this is a test of honesty, would be tempted as you got to the end of verse 1 and you started seeing the list of names, just, 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 just go, yeah, skip right over it. Yeah? All right. The other half of you are not telling the truth. Um, it's, it's a temptation, right? We get to genealogies in the Old Testament. There's a lot of them. Um, the Jewish people really value genealogies because of they, they value history and they value their lineage and they value um, their belonging to the people of, of Judah, to the, to, to the nation of Israel. And we are tempted often to just overlook them. But this morning, I want to help you understand why every word of Scripture is truly God-breathed, and how beautiful, even genealogies that otherwise we might just go, um, but how beautiful and valuable they really are to us. And I know it takes some digging, but this morning I want to do a little bit of digging, and I'm not going to be studying every single name in the genealogy, so please don't tune out, because I've organized it this morning in a way that I hope will be very, very helpful for you. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you from this text, from the genealogy, that, Jesus, that Matthew is telling us four things about Jesus. Jesus is dot, 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 all right? That's going to be the focus of today. So Jesus is, if you're making a list, you're going to end up with four. Jesus is dot, 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 and we're going to study this set of verses, and we're going to learn how Matthew is choosing to introduce us, inspired by the Spirit of God. The first thing that we see is this. Number one, Jesus is the promised Messiah. The promised Messiah. If you look at verse one, 
What you see there is the first phrase, the book of genealogy, all right? Now, one of the things I love about this phrase is that it shows us, what Matthew is doing for us is he's showing us that Jesus is a part of real history. All of Jewish history has prepared the way for Jesus to be born. So Jesus doesn't just appear out of nowhere. Jesus appears in human history, and he has this long ancestry. And what Matthew is doing is he's showing us how God is ruling providentially in history to accomplish his great purpose in bringing forth his son, our Savior. Now, ancient biographers, biographers would often start like this um, because what happens is it sets the, the subject of their biography in the context of history, and it sets them in the character of those who have, have come before them. And so what Matthew is doing is he's helping us to recognize the inseparability of Jesus and the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and the purpose of God. If you think about it like this, I'll put a diagram up. Often, um, we talked about Matthew being, being a bridge builder, right? And one of the things that Matthew wants us to understand, and all of you, as your pastor, I want you to understand, is that when you approach the Old Testament, what you're really doing is you are looking at tons of promises. There are so many promises of God in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is really like God setting the scene, promise after promise, of one who is to come who will be the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. So when you get to the New Testament, the way to understand the New Testament is to understand the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. The Old Testament, a book of promise, while the New Testament is a book of fulfillment. And in fact, one of the key words in Matthew is the word fulfilled. It's one of his key themes. So, for instance, you have a verse like in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we know in the very garden, in the very beginning, as we see the way God originally designed it and the beauty of it, and then the brokenness because of sin, Adam and Eve's sin, that ultimately is the same choice we've made to turn against God. But even there in the garden, God is making a promise that there's coming a day that someone from their offspring will come. He will bruise. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a messianic promise, even from the very beginning. From the very beginning, and you know it in your life, and I know it in mine, brokenness, need, separation from God, Something outside of us has to change me. My heart, my life are so messed up. I need help. And God, in the midst of our desperation and brokenness and sin, brings a promise. And what Matthew's helping us to see is all of this promise, all of it, leads not just to the New Testament, but substitute this with just Jesus, okay? All of these promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled, a key theme in this book, are fulfilled in 
Jesus Christ. Matthew uses at least 129 quotations or allusions from the Old Testament. He is writing with an understanding that his Jewish readers and us who are students of Scripture will understand all of these promises are meant to lead us to this person, this person who is Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus. And what Matthew is doing, oh man, it drives me crazy sometimes when we approach the Old Testament, and I used to do, make this mistake, and now as God has just opened my eyes to understand the scriptures, I, I try not to make the mistake anymore, but as you read stories, even stories of some of these guys who are in the list of Matthew chapter 1, stories of guys like, like David or like Abraham or some of these great kings that are mentioned, like Solomon, you know, what, what Matthew's showing us is you cannot separate the purpose of their lives and their ministry and their following, following of God. You cannot separate those from Christ. In fact, all of those great heroes that we call heroes of the Old Testament are meant to be pointers, signs toward Christ. That's why we interpret everything in the Scripture in light of Christ. And that's what Matthew is trying to help us see is all of it is pointing to Jesus. One of the other things I like about um, this phrase, if we go back to the phrase, the book of the genealogy. Um, another way that this can be translated is the book of the Genesis. Okay? Sound familiar? Yes. That's the first book of the Bible. Another way you can interpret Genesis is the book of the beginning. Okay? And so what Matthew is making clear here, he's evoking literally back to Genesis. It's the last time we hear this phrase is in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 and Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, the exact same phrase. For Jewish listeners, they would have immediately, because they memorized the scriptures, they would have immediately referred back to the creation account. It's the last time this phrase is being used, the book of the beginnings. So what Matthew is doing is he's saying, basically, in the beginning, similar way John opens his gospel, in, in the beginning. So the theme of the fulfillment of Scripture is signaled right here from the very start. He's saying a new creation is taking place in Jesus Christ. I really love it. Another thing that is really cool about this, and I've got to move on, but is that the way that Matthew uses the book of generations here, or the book of the genealogy, it contrasts really starkly with the use of the same kind of genealogies in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what you found was a list of descendants. But with Jesus in this genealogy, you find a list of ancestors. So in other words, what Matthew is saying here is that Jesus is so much the focal point of history that even his ancestors depend upon him for their meaning. It's incredible. Messiah. I told you that this first point is that we learn that Jesus is the Messiah. And right here in verse 1, as we move on from that first phrase, the book of genealogy, the book of genealogy refers to, it says genealogy of who? Of Jesus. 
Now, Jesus is the Greek form of the Old Testament name Joshua. Some of you guys probably know that. Joshua in Jesus' day was like a guy being called John or Ben. You know, it's just a very common name. And so what would happen is because Jesus' name was so common, the way people would differentiate themselves usually would have something like Jesus of Nazareth. But interestingly... Matthew here, instead of differentiating Jesus, Joshua, from the others by describing his hometown, he says, what does he say? Look at that. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, I know that some of us think that Christ is Jesus' last name or surname. I used to think that. Um, But it's just not. And some of you may have been familiar with this, but I want to make sure we all understand that that Matthew is introducing a name attached with Jesus' name that is so much more than just a surname. It is a title, friends. Now, let me show you why I know that it's a title. For instance, look at the end of the passage. He also uses this name down in verse 16. Look at your Bibles. When he says, whom Jesus was born... And now he's not attaching it directly with Jesus. He's using it as a title. Who is called, what? Christ. He is called Christ. This is a title of Jesus. Additionally, um, there at the end of the passage in verse 17, he says, from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. He's not even mentioned Jesus' name here in 17. He's just referring to Christ as a title in and of itself, as the coming of this, this one who has this office. So what does this mean? Christ means the anointed one, or literally in our series title, it means the Messiah. But typically when we say Messiah, it's almost void of meaning. Jesus, Messiah. What do we mean when we sing Messiah? For unto us the child is born. Handles Messiah, right? But what does it mean in your heart? In your heart, what happens when you say the word Messiah or when you sing it? For a Jew, that word carries all of their hopes and expectations that God would one day fulfill his promise in bringing redemption for his people, hope to the hopeless, restoration of the world. All of my hope is in you, God. That's why we sing it like that. All my hope is in you. I'm not a good singer. But what I'm trying to help you understand is that, do you feel the weight of that? That truly all of our hope, all of our expectation, all of our longing, all of our desire for God to fulfill his promises to his people and to me is wrapped up in the coming of this one who is promised. This one who will come. All of it is wrapped up in him. And in Jesus' day, Palestine was rife with messianic expectation. Not all of it was coherent, not all of it was on point, but they were waiting for this promised one. And what Matthew says as he comes onto the scene is this promised one has come. All of your hopes have been fulfilled because 
this Jesus is not just Jesus of Nazareth. He is Jesus who is the title of the Christ. He is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Amen? This is Jesus. Number two, not only is Jesus the promised Messiah, but number two, Matthew shows us that Jesus is the promised king of Israel the promised king of Israel. If you look back at verse 1, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, this is the Messiah part. Now, secondly, we have this phrase, the son of David. The son of, of David. Matthew explicitly emphasizes that Jesus' descent is from David. Now, the son of David is a super important phrase because it's the title of the rightful heir of David's throne. It's the title of, of the one who would be designated to sit on his throne forever and forever. Some of you guys remember probably, as we have talked before about the book of 2 Samuel, or if you've sat under some of our discipleship or studied it in another time, but in the book of 2 Samuel, in chapter 7, there's a key point in David's life as David is trying to build a, a temple, a permanent house for God. Um, God comes to David and says, oh, David, you got it all wrong. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm building a house for you. And, and, and from you, David, and from your line is going to come a throne that will never end. In fact, what he says here in verses 12 to 16, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish a kingdom. This is God speaking to him. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Down in verse 16, he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me and your throne shall be established forever. David is overwhelmed by this because what David understands is that he's talking about the promised one, the Messiah, would, that God would choose to bring the Messiah through David's genealogy. What an incredible moment in Israel's history. So the Jewish people had this longing for this one who was promised to sit on the throne, who would be the true king, God himself, on the throne of the hearts of his people, and ultimately one day the throne of the nations to establish justice and righteousness and peace on earth. Get out of town! How great is that going to be? And in fact, Isaiah the prophet, when he comes on the scene and Chapter 9 of verse 6 and 7, what we typically think of as a Christmas passage, you remember for and to us a child is born, this is Handel's Messiah, right? To us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And sometimes we overlook this, but they would have known this and held on to this. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The promise of the coming king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, coming through David, eager 
expectation for this one. Now, think of the weight of what Matthew is saying in chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy, the new beginnings, the genesis of Jesus, who is the Christ. He's the Messiah, but don't miss it. He is also what? The son of David. What do you hear now? It's not just that David somewhere back in the family tree is granddad. You hear that this is the one, the one who these promises in 2 Samuel 7 were made. The one who Isaiah prophesied would come to sit on his throne. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. And that's why Matthew works so hard to produce his genealogy because royalty is determined by heritage. And so he has to show us, and it's an incomplete genealogy. He chooses it to organize three parts of 14 each. The, re- the hearers of the day would have trailed exactly with what he was doing, and he's showing the completeness of his pedigree without going through every single name. But the, the people of his day would go, he is the heir the heir to David's throne as they listen to his background. God had to bring the Messiah from the throne, from the actual genealogical line of David. That was God's promise to David. And sure enough, God has done it. The king is Jesus. And the theme continues throughout the book. Oh man, I wish I had more time for this, but I don't. Um, each of the gospel writers have a particular emphasis about Jesus, and Matthew, one of Matthew's primary emphasis is that Jesus is king. And that's why on the logo of the series that we created, you'll see the crown. When you see that logo, one of the things that Matthew's trying to teach us, that's why we put it there, is that Jesus is the king. Mark writes about Jesus being a servant. Luke writes about him being the son of man. John writes about him being the son of God, more universal message. Matthew has a clear theme that Jesus is is king. And I'll put up a brief slide, yeah. The message of the kingdom is preached by John. You see that, Matthew records that in chapter three. He preaches the message from the beginning of his ministry there in chapter four, and he even sends out the apostles with the message of the kingdom there in chapter 10. So what Jesus is doing throughout his life is he's helping us to understand he, he holds all of these different offices, and one of his titles, his offices, is that he is king. He's the rightful king of all the king of the hearts of God's people, the the coming king who will establish the throne of God again on earth forever and ever. What a wonderful king he is, amen? Number three, not only is Jesus the promised Messiah, not only is he the promised true king of Israel, but third, he's the promised savior of all nations. The promised savior of all nations. If you look back at verse one, He says, a record, a book of the genealogy, the beginnings of Jesus, okay, who is the Christ. He is the the son of David. And then third here, we see this phrase, the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. Now, this is huge. Some people 
thought that this was one of the messianic titles that would be given to the Messiah. We know that from Leviticus 8.15. Uh, some people, uh, all the people knew that from the beginning that the original covenant of the people of Israel, so let's think back to Genesis chapter 12 real quick. So if you think back to your Old Testament history, as God first called people to himself, he came to Abraham and he spoke, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, those who dishonor you, I'll curse you, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed through, through you. In chapter 17, verse 7, he says, he repeats it, and he expands it, and he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, he's talking to Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And then in verse chapter 22, verse 18, he says, and in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed. Abraham, a key figure, a recipient of the promise of God, the whole nation of Israel formed from his offspring. And God says to him, through your offspring, Abraham, I am going to bring a blessing that will expand and increase to all the nations. And Paul, in Galatians 3, which we studied last fall, chapter 3, he says, builds a whole theological argument on that, to your offspring. It's not offsprings, it's to one. As God makes a promise to Abraham, he is seeing the coming of Christ. Abraham's offspring is Christ. Through Abraham's genealogy will come the redeemer of the world, and by his redemption, God will spread a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So, Imagine as you're listening to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the generations of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, who is the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne, who is the son of Abraham. What? This is amazing. The offspring of Abraham is here. The one who will bring salvation, not just to the Jews, but to all of the nations. I love that God is a God of more than Jewish people. I love that God is a God of more than American people, of white people and black people. There are people with colors of skin we haven't even seen yet that God's a God of. Isn't that great? Whose languages we don't even know yet who God's a God of. Isn't that great? God cares about this world, and he loves every person in the world. And I love that he leads Matthew to, dis, to bring Jesus onto the scene by reminding the Jewish people, oh, and they would have heard it, that this is a fulfillment not just for you, the Jews, but as a promise to the nations. The other thing that I think is so cool about this, I get a little excited, but if you look at the genealogical list, okay, what you see in here is that Okay, so if Matthew only wanted to give the history of Israel in a more general way, you would have thought he would have listed matriarchs like Sarah and Rebecca 
and Leah and Rachel, right? Good Jewish women. But who does he mention? He goes out of his way to mention Tamar, Canaanite. Then he goes on to mention Rahab. Oh, she's of Jericho. Then he goes on to mention Ruth, another non-Jew, Moabitess. Then he goes on and he mentions the ex-wife of Uriah, Hittite, non-Jew. What is Matthew doing? He is saying to us, this one, Jesus, has come not just for the Jewish people. He's come as a savior for the nations. And he is forming a new people, a called out assembly, which we call the ecclesia, the church. Ek kaleo, the called out ones. That's what it means. And these called out ones are made up of Jews and Gentiles with no distinctions like we like to see in this world. And throughout the book, there's a universal element in it, and we'll talk about it all throughout the book, but he reminds us that this one has come not just for the Jews, but for all people, which means, friends, no matter your background, no matter your money, no matter your pedigree, no matter your education, no matter your race, no matter your neighborhood, Jesus came for you. Number four, and finally, not only was Jesus the promised Messiah, the promised king of Israel, the promised savior of all nations, but fourth and finally, he is the promised giver of God's grace. He is the promised giver of God's grace. While this is not the main point, the genealogy brings up some really intentional things that I believe just hit our hearts. One of the things that I love about this is that it is very unusual for a Jewish genealogy to include women. And I love that as God presents Jesus and his background and his genealogy, he includes women. And all throughout the gospel, we see an unusual inclusion and mention and prominence of women showing God's grace and his love and his value to all. Yes, we have different roles to play, but God values and loves us all. And he gives grace. He gives grace. I also love that in that list of women, you think about Tamar, um, and you think about some of the, the background of these ladies, um, there are issues with pretty much all of them, Tamar and sexual issues with her father-in-law and Rahab and prostitution and you've even got, the, it, it even names Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah as if to help us remember that she's not David's original wife. And yet, God uses these broken, unlikely, messed up, in ways immoral characters and puts them in the line of the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham? Oh, yes, he does. Why does he choose to do it this way? He could have done it 
any other way. Why does he choose to do it this way, to bring the Christ in through this family tree? Because it is a showcase that Jesus has not come for righteous people. He has come for sinners. Because there are none righteous, no, not one. This Christ, this Jesus, is our Redeemer, the giver of grace for all who believe. And some of us feel so soiled by our sin, by our wrongdoing. Some of us feel so unworthy, so broken, that we think we are too far gone for the love and the grace and the presence of God to come again in our lives, for our sins to be forgiven. But I'm telling you, even in the genealogy of Jesus, you can hear the good news of the gospel, that you're not too far gone to be redeemed by his love and grace. Amen? As we close this morning, the other thing I was thinking about with this genealogy and the fact that he came as the giver, the promised giver of grace, is Matthew's own testimony. In Matthew chapter 9, we know that Matthew is a tax collector. Tax collectors are some of the most hated people. They sold themselves to the Romans to work for the government. The more they gathered, the more they could keep. They were considered thieves. They were considered traitors. They had constant contact with Gentiles, which made them unclean. And yet Matthew is a man who has been completely changed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Matthew is a man who stands amazed that he would love a sinner like him. And in fact, at the end of his account, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Matthew knew that because he himself was so aware of his sin, but then as he met Jesus became so aware of the grace of God for sinners like him. This is Jesus. As our band comes and we move to close and response this morning, I, I just marvel. I just wonder, you know, do you marvel? You know, some of us have heard this before in pieces, but to actually like open God's word and to really study it and to really understand it, like to really get the amazement of what God has done in bringing the fulfillment to all of his promises in this one person who is God and man, God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. All of our hope is truly in him. He is the promised Messiah. He is. And I wonder today, if you have a heart that just says, oh God, would you help me feel the weight? You know, like all, all of my hope is in you. Like when I say Messiah, when I sing Messiah, when I think Messiah, when I pray Messiah, would you let me feel that all of my hope is truly in this one? And he has come. He's come in Jesus Christ. He's truly the promised king of Israel. He can restore. Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to the throne of David. And I'll tell you this, by God's spirit and grace, he can restore the rightful rule of God to your heart again. 
He can. If you repent of your sin and believe in him and you surrender your life to him, he will forgive you and he will restore to you the presence of God once again in your life. He will take his rightful place as the true king of your life once more. And you will see a day because of his promise that Jesus will come again and he will establish his throne of righteousness once again in a new earth. And I can't wait for that day. He's the true king. He's the true savior of all nations. He loves all without discrimination. And he calls us to love him and to live in light of his love for all, loving others as he has loved us. And he is the promised giver of God's grace. And I wonder today if there's some brokenness, some sin, some just deep bondage that you feel attached to, that you just maybe disbelieve that God cannot redeem, that God can redeem. And today you've heard, I mean, look at the brokenness, even in his genealogy, and yet he comes on the scene announcing that he can make all things new. He can give grace and forgiveness and newness for all who believe.